0: You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been a week since the John A. Burns School of Medicine resumed donations for its Willed Body program. Medical students, residents, interns, and practicing surgeons rely on the generosity of those who've made a decision to allow the use of their bodies as part of a training program to learn about the human anatomy. We talked to Stephen Labrash, head of the program. You know, this can be a subject that can seem awkward to ask about when you're just genuinely curious to find out about the process.
1: Prior to this year, we were about 180 per year. It was pretty consistent for the last three years, I think. Um, so this year, because we were closed for half of the year, that number's reduced. and of course, next year it'll be reduced a little bit as well. Um but you know we're hoping you know we're hoping a year down the line we'll be back to normal and we'll be able to uh, uh, offer the different all the different courses and classes that we've been able to offer pre-COvid. Uh, we'll be able to offer all those again.
0: yeah, and and that's the thing is that you weren't having in-person classes like you did before, and so that reduced the number of uh, uh, actual, uh, bodies that you needed correct and, and explain to people for for folks who may not be familiar with your program uh, what's involved
1: I'm um, sure so our program uh, we call it a willed body program it allows people the opportunity to will their body to uh, uh, an Institute of Education or research not unlike they would will anything else that has value or possession Um, The human body is not considered property, of course. So the willed body program, it's run under the Anatomical Gift Act. And this allows us, for technical reasons, to convert somebody from a person to a cadaver. And I know that's a term that people use a lot. Most of the time when people use the term cadaver, it's used incorrectly. A cadaver is only a person who is donated for science and or education. A cadaver isn't just a deceased person. Oh, interesting. Um, now, the, the term cadaver itself is, is one that we don't really like here that much. We, we Although it's a legal term and it's, 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 it's an acceptable term, um, we never use the term cadaver with our students. When we're introducing the students to their silent teachers in lab, we'll use the term teacher, we'll use the term silent teacher or mentor. Um, we try to stay away from the word cadaver. And the reason we do that is because when the students are out in society when they're interacting with potential families, for them to refer to their silent teacher as a cadaver kind of has a cold, harsh sound to it. Um, But nobody is offended by the term of some being referred to as a silent teacher or a mentor. And, And it really says the same thing. It just sounds so much nicer for the families to hear.
0: Have you ever had a situation where the uh, med school student maybe knew who their silent teacher was?
1: You know, Hawaii is such a small community. Inevitably, that will happen. It has happened from time to time. Um, I think we've worked out most of the kinks with it now. And so what we do now is we know ahead of time which silent teachers are going to be teaching anatomy toward med students. And usually about a week before the students start their first class of anatomy, we meet with them. We go over the rules of the lab. We go over the etiquette of being in the room with the silent teachers, you know, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. Being in a room, especially for our students, I mean, these are, you know, they're medical students, but for the most part, they're relatively young. They're in their early 20s for the most part. And being in a room with 20 deceased individuals is an extremely awkward situation for anybody, but especially for somebody young like that. And so levity, uh, making light, making jokes, in an awkward situation, is a normal defensive mechanism. Um, And we understand that it's a normal defensive mechanism, but we can't have the students making light in the lab because they feel awkward. And so uh, uh, about a week before they start the first class, we meet with the students, we go over the lab rules. Um, I ask the students if anybody knows anybody who's joined the program, and invariably, there's going to be a handful of people that they know. So we write down those names, and then we come back into the lab when the students are there, and we make sure that those people aren't teaching the student.
0: Right, because uh, that, that would make it more It would be
1: un- awkward, awkward for everybody, yeah. yeah. Now, that being said, um, it still happens. Uh, there are some students who just don't speak up sometimes. Uh, uh, we had a, a massage therapy group that was doing a short dissection course. It was just a short three-day course. And at the end of the course, one of the students came up to us and said, oh, yeah, I'm a physical therapist, and this guy right here was my patient. Oh, gosh. And, and at first we thought they were just, you know, speaking poetic. And then after talking with them, we realized, no, this really was their patient that they've been doing physical therapy with for several years, and they just didn't mention it to us. So, so you know, Hawaii is such a small place, and everybody knows everybody, it seems like. Uh, it is something that we do have to be conscientious of, and it has to be something that we we try to make sure it doesn't happen. But unfortunately, sometimes it still slips through.
0: And then, what if there are people out there on the neighbor islands that are interested in willing their bodies to science and, and um, to UH? Well, it's, How it's, does that work?
1: It's the same process. They still have to they still have to fill out the donor form. Um, the difference is is if you're on one of the outer islands, you're having to contract with a mortuary to pick up the person from the place of death, get a death certificate and a disposition permit so that body can then be put onto a plane and then flown into Honolulu. Now, once the plane lands at Honolulu, we take possession of the body, and you know we do it like we normally would if somebody died on the island of Oahu. But there's expenses involved. So for somebody on one of the outer islands who wants to donate, they have to really want to donate because they're, they're paying sometimes as much money as they would pay for a direct cremation in transportation fees and mortuary fees just getting the body here to oahu so it's it uh, it says quite a bit about somebody on the outer islands that goes through all that financial effort and cost to do something like that
0: well now during the pandemic you had mentioned that you've had lots of inquiries about people wanting to donate their relatives you know, body to science but my understanding is that you would prefer that the person uh, who is the teacher the silent teacher that they make that decision themselves
1: Absolutely. All programs, all body donor programs want to run as ethical of a program as possible. And of course, we're no different. If somebody signs the donor paperwork themselves, then as the director in my mind, I have no doubt that this is something they wanted to do. And that's really the best case scenario is for people to fill out the paperwork themselves. And there's no questioning the donation at all. Where we run into problems is when the donation is done by the family and no paperwork has been done in advance. There was a family that I talked to over in the hospitals. Uh, They wanted to donate their parent. We treat each one of these potential donations as a case-by-case basis, and one of the questions we always ask is, what is the motivation for this donation? And what we want to hear is, oh, this is something that Mom wanted to do, something she talked about, or she thought the donor tag on her driver's license was for donating the body. We want to hear something along those lines to let us know this is something that the donor themselves wanted to do um, and unfortunately uh, the last time I had this conversation with a the family their response was we don't have any money for cremation we don't have any money for a burial and while I absolutely understand that and I can sympathize with that we're all in the same position here finances are tough for everybody um, lack of money is not a reason to donate somebody for education and or research um, I don't think anybody that utilizes these incredible gifts for educational purposes, for surgical training purposes, for research purposes. Um, I don't think anybody takes it lightly what we're doing with the bodies and the training that that is providing. Um, but we can't have the decision made on financial reasons. Right. Uh, it just it just makes our job too difficult that way. And and we don't want to be in the gray area. We want to be 100% sure all the time. And and so currently. We're not accepting any post-mortem donations. Uh, you know, maybe in a couple months when we get back into the ring of things, maybe we'll start having that potential again. But as of right now, uh, we're keeping things as small as possible, as, as ethically positive as possible. And so we're not doing any post-mortem donations right now.
0: Then if folks uh, are interested going forward, they can go to your website and call and, and find out this, the particulars.
1: The, the donor forms are on the website. If people call, we, we're happy to mail them a donor form. We've faxed people donor forms before if it was a rush situation. But, yeah, all, all the paperwork is, is easily available.
0: I shared that I recall the body exhibit that came to the islands, and it was just really fascinating, you know, to learn about the human body and the different systems, you know, the circulatory system. And I think for the students, what a gift to have a silent teacher, to have a donor to help them through their education.
1: The relationship, and th- this is going to sound This may sound a little bizarre to people who've never taken uh, a gross anatomy or uh, a human anatomy course where they've done dissection, but the relationship that a student has with their silent teacher is an incredibly powerful relationship that will carry on throughout their entire career. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've had visiting professors here, we've had visiting doctors here who, you know, went to medical school 30, 40, 50 years ago, and I like picking their brains. I like talking to them to find out how medical schools have changed. Uh, A lot of stuff is similar. A lot of stuff is different. But the one thing that they all remember without fail is who their silent teacher was. Um, They may not remember all the students they graduated with. They may not remember all the professors. But I've yet to encounter one single doctor who does not remember their silent teacher. And something as, as clear as their first day of lab where they're introduced to their silent teacher is something that has impact. It's something that our students do a really great job with. They have a high level of respect. They have a, lots of pono when they walk into the lab, and that certainly makes my job much easier, but it's the foundation of a relationship that will stay with these students forever. They're going to spend over 100 hours dissecting their first year of medical school. Uh, so they're spending over a hundred hours with this one patient, their 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 very first patient, and by the time they're done, they're going to know things about this patient physically, uh, physiologically, that maybe even the patient didn't know, and and so it's uh, you know it's it's one of the most important relationships that a student will have while they're in medical school for sure.
0: And is that term, silent teacher, is that something that everybody uses in med school?
1: Um, you know, students are. I love working with our students because they take our cues for the most part. And from the first day of lab, we refer to these mentors as either silent teacher or mentors. And without even having to uh, ask the kids to use our vernacular, our words, they just pick up those words. So, yes, yeah, silent teacher is probably the most common descriptor that we use mentor is is right behind it teacher is right behind it and you know i think all of those are acceptable i think all of those are accurate and um, you know they have the warmth involved where the word cadaver just doesn't have that warmth Mm. and so you know hopefully it's something that our students will carry forward throughout the rest of their career.
0: The the dissections involved bodies that are both
1: embalmed and not embalmed, right? For anatomy, to, to learn gross anatomy, because the course takes a year long to teach, the bodies have to be embalmed. You know, Now, when they get into surgical training, and these would not be medical students, of course, these are going to be residents. These are going to be uh, interns. These are going to be even established surgeons. A lot of people don't realize that once you become a doctor, your education is not over. Most licenses require to have a certain number of hours, uh, continuing medical education is what they call it. You're supposed to have a certain number of hours to keep your license current. And what the silent teachers allow us to do for the surgical training, it allows the doctors to learn the newest techniques, the newest procedures, uh, working with the newest equipment. Medicine is always evolving and always moving forward. And so, uh, uh, you know, you may, be a, uh, you may be a surgeon who's done an appendectomy a thousand times in your career. But the science of how to do that surgery is going to change over time. And so Mm -hmm. when something new comes in, they also need a way to practice that new technique, that new procedure, or possibly work with new equipment. And so uh, our silent teachers, people that donate into our Willed Body program, not only teach our medical students, but they also teach doctors, surgeons, people that have been in the community, people that have been in the field for sometimes decades,
0: We've been hearing from Stephen Labrash, head of the University of Hawaii's Willed Body Program. For links, you can head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance EMBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. This week on Says You... This is Darwin talking to Simple Protoplasm going, If you play this right... You evolve into a
3: crab. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll end up on a plane.
1: It's fast, it's fun, it's some of the most colorful radio on the air, and you're invited.
2: Says you, beginning this evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. <laughs> Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island style lunch at the open air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at Honolulumuseum.org.
0: This is the conversation on statewide, member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. <laughs> Territorial Governor Wallace Farrington issued an executive order designating over 200 acres for an airport at Ho'ulehua Molokai. Fourteen years later, following the attack on Pearl Harbor, the military took control of all of Hawaii's airports for wartime operations. Throughout this period, the Army made extensive changes to the Molokai Airport's infrastructure. Some of those changes were good, like paved runways and the construction of taxiways and plane parking areas. But the military didn't address the problem of heavy rainfall on the airfield. Too much mud and water flow could often force the airfield to close. After the territory resumed control of the airport, a system of drainage ditches were designed and completed in September 1953. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the price tag for this drainage system improvement project? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Take a guess. Whoever's closest gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, NairitHawaii.com.
0: It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. The focus is the pending closure of a Houla care facility. Reporter Eleni Abendaño joins us this morning.
3: Hi. Hi, good morning.
0: So, this story was a team effort.
3: Yeah, we actually um, heard about this from a former colleague whose mother uh, lives at the Dignity Senior Living at Oceanside, Hawaii. It's up in Houla. And the residents received a letter saying that they um, may have to vacate by April 30th. Um, And so when we looked into it, we got in touch with the Hawaii State Department of Health at the Office of Healthcare Assurance. Um, And Keith Ridley, who leads that office, said it's the first time that he knows of that the state is actually seeking to to shut down the assisted living facility. Yeah, and Uh, the the letter
0: that you have posted on your website, it's dated April 20th, so that was just a couple days ago.
3: Yeah, they they sent out their letter of warning, um, or actually their intention to uh, shut down the facility uh, on April 12th. Their facility received it on the 16th, but then the residents themselves, um, and there was probably about 61 residents in their 80s and 90s um, who were just given notice this week that they may have to vacate. Uh, So this is a pretty unprecedented situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just can't recall a time when we've had to do this so quickly.
3: Right. Uh, Keith Ridley, the head of the Office of Health Care Assurance, he said that um, the Adult Protective Services had concluded that there was caregiver neglect at the facility. So that was the main reason that the state decided to revoke their license.
0: And uh, their investigation was triggered by, what, a couple of complaints, right?
3: Right, yeah. to that caregiver neglect, um, there are other complaint investigations, and the, site, the, the state has cited them about 149 times, um, and all of those deficiencies were putting residents at risk of harm, um, according to the office. Uh, we did get in touch, though, with the uh, the CEO of Dignity Senior Living, the facility is also known as Oceanside, um, Albert Chen, the said that he does plan on appealing this decision, and he said he does not intend to close the facility. He doesn't want the residents and their family members to panic. Um, He said they're in communication with DOH, and they're going to try to work something out. Um, Whether or not that will happen is still a a big question. Um, There are federal laws that would apply to a nursing home in this city because this is an assisted living facility. Uh, is subject to state laws, not federal laws. So there aren't as many options or um, other alternatives. For example, if this was a nursing home, the the state might step in and uh, replace the administrator. Um, but because this is so unprecedented, it's hard to predict what's going to happen.
0: Well, talk some more about the, the f- deficiencies. What were what the problems that they found?
3: Well, we have not yet been get our hands on the most recent inspection report but we looked at prior inspection reports the most recent one that was filed in 2020 um found, uh, cited several cases of when residents um, service plans were just not uh, not in line with what their physicians had asked for example one resident had a doctor where the patient has a particular um, diet for diabetes and that was not being tended to um, there are other complaints, such as some documentation about when medications were given or why certain medications um, were continued to be prescribed if the physician said to um, cease those prescriptions. Um, there are also issues related to the building itself. Uh, the fire alarm system needed repair back in 2019. Um, I'm, the health department came back to do an inspection in 2020. There was no sign of the facility corrected that issue, um, so it seems there is a bit of history. Um, but we're still looking to find out more exactly um, about you know the hundred plus um, deficiencies found by the health department.
0: I guess the one thing that surprised me was that uh, you know I guess the facility didn't have a registered nurse that was available twenty four hours
3: a day. Yeah, yeah. So that was an issue, um, according to the health department. Usually, that's something um, that is required of all assisted living facilities, that a registered nurse must be available you know, 24 hours per day. Um, and another issue that they found also was that certain staff who did not have the proper licensing or credentials were administering medica- medications without the health department's approval.
0: Yeah, alarming deficiencies. But thank you so much, Eleni. I'm sure you're going to be tracking the latest developments with this. Thanks so much. Yes. Thank you. That was reporter Eleni Avendano with today's reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Williams' passion is Hawaii history. He got his doctorate in the subject and is about to launch a series of online lectures about Queen Liliuokalani. Williams works uh, at the State Archives, which gives him access to volumes of some of the most important documents in Hawaii's history. We talked to him recently about a pet project that he hopes will get traction to honor the queen. Here's what the Mo'i Project about Hawaii's monarchs is all about.
4: I've been going to the celebrations of the Queen's birthday at Iolani Palace for several years. And as a historian and as somebody who's out in the community a lot, even the community outside of Hawaii, I've noticed that her story isn't generally known by the general public. And so I've been going to her birthday celebrations at the palace. Some organized folks put those on, and they're really great. But I started to notice that I saw the same people every year. And I got this feeling that a little bit that we were preaching to the choir. The really important fact that some people miss out on about Hawai'i is Hawaiians are 24 percent of the population. So politically and and power-wise, if they want to get anything done, they've got to convince you know a significant portion of non-Hawaiians to, to side with them. And so up to this point, about 99 percent of my work has been for a Hawaiian audience. But I started to think that story needs to get out to the wider audience. You know, to the to the aunties at Longs and. And local folks and, and so forth. And I do believe that if the is told, the truth is told, then, then people inherently seek justice and, and, and will start to support those causes and so forth. But there's just such misinformation out there. So I thought, how can I get the story of the queen and, and what a amazing, you know, courageous, just queen she was, how can I get that to a larger general public in a way? So in 2018, I started and I printed up these fact sheets. I, um, I had done a talk for the for UH administration on the Queen about five years ago. And I had a kind of a handout of photographs and kind of bullet points about her reign. And um, they went over pretty well. So I took that handout and made them on nice paper, you know, heavy coffee paper and so forth. I had them printed downtown. And I went to a few businesses that were friends of mine, coffee shops and things like that. And I said, hey, can I put these on your counter on September 2nd with a little table tent that says, you know, today is Queen Lily Oklahoma's birthday. If you'd like to know more information about her, please please take one of these free flyers, you know. And there's nothing to sign up for, there's no political cause, there's no petition, it's just handout information. And I got about eight or ten stores and businesses to do it. And so the next year, with the help of some friends in, in Huiloha Aina and Renette Cruz and those guys, we did it in Hilo and in Honolulu. And we got about 30 or 40 shop, and the receptance was was, was, was really good. People were very on all for that information. And so last year was COVID, and then just a couple months ago, I was thinking about it, and I was like, how can we do this on a larger scale? And I have blessed to have a large following on Facebook. I have 5,000 friends on Facebook. And when I put something out there, people know my work, I think, and I get some support for it. And so I put out a call and I said, hey, does anybody want to help with this project of getting getting it out? And right away, we got almost 60 people signed up. And the idea was have everyone go into their neighborhood. And find five businesses that are willing to do this, that are willing to put these cards out on her birthday. And so we got all the islands covered. We started to get folks from Texas and California and so forth. And now we've actually got four countries covered. Wow! Um, and it's and it's and it's. We just started recruiting. But right now we've got sixty folks signed up. So that three hundred stores at the least, which you're talking about thousands of people that get this basic information about the Queen that will start to maybe hopefully get them interested, but it will at least get them more familiar with why folks why Hawaiians. Feel like this is an important day. Yeah. This is
0: really the queen's story that you're trying to share to a wider
4: audience. She had a short reign, but it, as a historian, I can tell you, you know, I, I've, I've studied the Mo'i, the different Mo'i, and I try very hard to remain neutral. You know, I very, try very hard to see these folks as human. You know, mistakes are made, and, and, and there's also good parts and so forth. But having said that, in the materials that I've gone through for the Queen, again and again and again, in every circumstance and in every situation, she comes across as being, as, as taking the, the graceful path and being honest. And, and not to say that she was never dishonest, but, but she was really a leader that's a good example. And I think, you know, besides that natural kind of affinity that, that, that we have for her, when we start to look at her reign in a pragmatic way uh, it comes across as a really great example of smako oevi leadership yeah in the kingdom
0: well i'm talking to you now you're sitting out uh, there uh, on the grounds of iolani palace you know yeah. i think we've heard you know the ambulance go by but it's just the modern day and mm-hmm. the story uh, from the past Uh, Mm -hmm. that you're trying to present, you know, factually. And and I know there's always a tendency to romanticize history, but you're trying to be real careful about presenting it fairly.
4: Right, because I do think it's important. So, you know, so I'm making a generalization here, but folks outside of the Native Hawaiian community in Hawaii, many of them tend to be wary of information or histories or so forth coming from the Native Hawaiian community because they, they tend to see it as, well, you know. yeah, they've got their story and so forth. And the reason why I think it's important for today is, and, and relevant today is because when we talk about all of the issues that are coming up, if we educate the people on what Native leadership looked like and what was done justly and what was done unjustly and so forth, then maybe they have a different take on it when they vote in that next election. Maybe two years from now, when a bill comes up to support Hawaiian language education, these folks who now know the history you know, feel a different way about it and so forth. So I do think it's a matter of, of educating that other 70 percent of Hawai'i and because I don't think – I think people are inherently just, and I think that the if there is an anti-Hawaiian rhetoric out there and so forth, I think it's out of ignorance. And so this idea to educate folks I do think can make a difference.
0: Well, just with my limited knowledge about the Queen mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. Hawaiian kingdom, you know, just mm-hmm. learning about, you know, the voting rights that we had and, and, uh, and all of that and how that was changed. And then knowing, you know, how, how she and others felt uh, toward, you know, those that were, were sick, you know, right. or whether it was the, some other kind of pandemic, uh, you know, just how they treated folks, you know, during that time. So right. I've learned a lot and it's just really opened my eyes to how progressive, you know, the Hawaiian yes. kingdom was.
4: Yes. Yes, and that's and that's an important point. And and so the the problem is one of the big problems is the institutional narrative, even about the Queen, was set up to convince people to leave that path behind and become good patriotic American citizens. And so you see things like in nineteen thirty one, when United, when the University of Hawaii published their annual yearbook, they used to have yearbooks like high schools. In the 1931 yearbook for the University of Hawaii, they talk about the, the the loss of the kingdom, and they title it "The Transition," and they say in there that the, that Queen Liliuokalani had ruled despotically, and her kingdom was taken from her, you know. And that's simply not true. You go back and look at the record, and they talk about this general narrative of that she was looking for more power, so she put forward this new constitution. Again, not true. We have evidence of 9,000 uh, <laughs> signatures on petitions, demanding a new constitution of the Queen. So she was listening to her constituency. So it really was this, this effort of her to listen to the voices of the people and also be there for them, like you said. So the project, the larger project of celebrating her birthday on September 2nd, I was thinking about how I could gain funding. And one of the things I've always committed myself to, so these projects are kind of outside of my other two jobs, <laughs> and they're my personal projects, and I've always made a point of not going for institutional help. The institutions in Hawaii have done amazing work, and they continue to do amazing work. Um, but when you tie yourself to them, they've often want to put their logo on it or they want to direct how it's gonna happen or so forth. And I found that working directly with the community, you know, we get it done and it works. So I had I had wondered how I'm gonna pay to get the materials to 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 put out thousands and thousands of these handouts. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'll teach a class online because I want that information to get out in another way, not just on September second. So I said I'll teach a class online for thirteen weeks on Sunday evenings and I'll do it for free and I'll offer people downloadable content and this, this really well-researched primary source history of Hawaii. And I'll ask folks if they can afford it to make a donation to the project to fund the purchasing of those materials. And so I did. I put it up online uh, and said, here I'm going to present this class of 13 weeks in May, June, and July. And we had we just passed over 300 registrants in the first two days.
0: Oh, my goodness.
4: Um, so people are really, again, people are really eager to, to, to gain primary source research about these stories. And so that's going to get the story out. Uh, from, you know, May to, to, to July, and then we'll be prepared for the September 2nd birthday. In my own research, over the last two decades, you know, I've gathered these materials. So when we go through the class and I say she came to power on, on January 29th, 1891, I'll have this signed you know, declaration by the cabinet there, you know, as the primary resource. When I say she did this, I'll have that primary resource. I've been processing a collection called the J. O. Carter Collection, the Joseph O. Carter Collection. Carter was the financial agent for the Queen for almost 30 years, uh, and also most of the big trusts in Hawaii: Abigail Cumana uh Admiral Campbell, Kamehameha Schools, um, all those big estates. And so the records in there have been unprocessed, so they haven't been—they've been available for public, but not people don't know about it because it's done—you know—we you haven't processed it yet. So as I'm going through it, I'm finding things like the personal checks of the queen. So I've got checks number one through 600 from Her Majesty over about a seven-year time period. And what they show, you know, we can talk about this general idea of her support for education. Well, you look at her personal checks, and you find that post-overthrow into the period of 1898, 1899, cash poor. You know, she had land, but she, she was struggling. She was paying tuition for these kids at schools around Hawaii, Iolani School, Kameime School for Girls she was paying the tuition of, of Native Hawaiian students, dozens of them, throughout that period. So these original resources continue to shed light on her character. There's some incredibly personal letters in there, including mm. a letter that talks about you know she's the queen is writing this letter to uh, Henry Cushman Carter, Joseph O'Carter's son, and she says to him, you know I've recently gotten news that my niece Ka'iulani, is feeling better, so I'm so my heart is relieved. Mm. She goes on to talk about some other issues, and then the letter stops, and there's a space and a little, you know, of where there's nothing. And then she says, "I've just received news of the death of my niece. I must go now. I leave you with aloha, So, so we, you know, we now know where she was at that moment. She was, she had been in a hotel in Washington D.C. And while she's writing this letter to Howard, she received a knock on the door, and it was a telegram telling her the death of Ka'iulani.
0: Wow, chicken skin. Uh, we've been talking about letters of Queen Liliu Okalani that archivist Ron Williams has come across in his research and because of his love of Hawaii history. For more of those kinds of insights about the personal side of the queen, you may want to join Williams for his series of lectures, a fundraiser for the Mo'i Project honoring Hawaii's leaders. We should say the uh, lecture series kicks off May 2nd. Look for links on our website. But, you know, we should note that since we last talked to him, we're told now more than 500 people have signed up for his talks. Thank you.
2: Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years of serving Hawaii businesses and homeowners, a distributor of Daikin air conditioners in the islands. Online ordering with shipping available at CostcoHawaii.com.
5: Need a break in your day? Whether you're in your car, your kitchen, or still in bed, Manu Minute brings
0: you the rich sounds of Hawaii's native forests and shorelines. Learn about the long-legged io, the clever alala, and more as we listen to the birds' unique songs and talk to experts about their conservation. Get the Manu Minute delivered to your phone or mobile device. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. In our backyard quiz earlier this morning, we told you about the Molokai Airport. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, all Hawaii's territorial airports came under control of the military for wartime operations. Throughout this area, the Army extensively altered Molokai's airport infrastructure. Some changes, like paved runways, were helpful to later airport operations. Other changes, not so much. One problem left completely unaddressed was the control of heavy rainfall, flooding, and mudslides onto the airfield, causing its closure. After the airport was returned to the territory around 1947, it needed a system of drainage ditches. That was completed on September 23, 1953, for the price of $29,460. That was the answer we were looking for, and we got no winners. But that is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at (laughs) HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Did you know April is National Native Plant Month? Indigenous species got a boost when Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono and Ohio Senator Rob Portman successfully passed a resolution designating April 2021 as National Native Plant Month. And as we mark Earth Day in keeping with the theme of Restore Our Earth, we highlight efforts of a local seed bank. The Hawaii Island Seed Bank started in 2008. It not only takes care of native seeds, but is expanded to include food crop seeds for local farmers. Jill Wagner is its program director. She also works for Terra Formation, a community resource for seed banking and reforestation. She spoke with the Conversations Lillian Song about the importance of native plants.
5: The best way that we can protect the planet is by regionally protecting our native species for, for each place. That is absolutely what is going to really make the planet continue to be livable and have species success. Our main goal is to try to make sure that we're capturing as a resource all of the species that we can, because if we don't do it, maybe nobody else will. I mean, there's not tons of people out there collecting seeds, so we really think this is important. We want to encourage more people to do it, and the way it works is the seed bank is like a safety deposit box, so people pay for a storage fee, and then they can deposit as much seed as they want throughout the year. That seed is owned by the landowner, and that seed is properly taken care of for them, and they can withdraw that seed anytime they want, if they have projects, if they want to grow, or they can store it and save it for future restoration or, as I said, for future generations. So we provide that service, and those um, people that have large lands and want to save seed, those are our partners. The Hawaii Island Seed Bank is administered by Ka'ahu'i'a Na Helehele, and that is an organization focused on the preservation of the dry forest. And the dry forest is one of the most rare ecosystems on Earth, certainly very, very rare. I think there's less than 10% left in Hawaii. And so we're very grateful for the support, especially of the board, because they understand the importance of seed banking. Um, Climate change is very much tied to the health and success of biodiversity, of healthy habitats all over the world. So it's very, very important that we collect native seeds, and so that's our commitment. A seed banker, what they do is they go out into the field, they collect seeds, they bring them back into a laboratory, they clean those seeds, and then seeds have to be dried. So all seeds have water in them, and you can't just throw seeds in the fridge. People think that's what seed banking is, but if you put seeds in a refrigerator, what happens is the water in those seeds them to degrade so they'll only live for a couple of years and then they'll crash and they'll die but if you dry seeds properly you can store them for decades so there is a process and this these processes are international standards for how to take care of seeds and bank them properly and you can do this anywhere in the world, and that's one of the things that we try to do is to teach people how to do it. It's not that hard, but there's just specific things that you need to do because seed has a pod. It has like a husk or a pulpy flesh or something, and you need to remove that and prepare the seed. So we do, we do all of that, and then we try to teach people how to do that as well. So you teach people how to bank seeds. If I'm interested, how can I connect with you to learn this process? Well, what we've done is created something called TerraFormation Academy. Our company, TerraFormation, is what I call the jet fuel for fighting climate change, and we help projects to accelerate. And one of the things that we're doing now is we're creating a video series to go through the step-by-step process of seed banking so that anybody can take this video series. It's a series of 10, 10 10-minute videos, and they can receive a certificate that they've completed it, and that will walk them through these really high international standards for how to take care of seeds properly so your seeds can store for decades. And that's what we're doing to try to really reach out more and help more people.
3: With your work with the Hawaii Island Seed Bank, what sort of seeds are you collecting? There are different ecosystems
5: that we've worked in, such as the coastal ecosystems, and then all the species that grow in that ecosystem we try to collect for. And we've collected for the dry forest. And the dry forest has a whole bunch of species, such as the willy willy trees or llama trees, he'e, a'ali'i. There's a whole bunch of, of species that would grow in the dry forest. And that dry forest extends up the mountain to about 1,300 feet and it shifts into a mesic forest. And mesic forest has some aspects of the dry forest and then it, it has also plant species that would grow in a wetter forest and we collect there and some species would be colea and then you'd get ohia and it moves up to a wet forest you would have more of the species that you'd find in the understory like the hawaiian holly um, copico and um and, and there's a lot that I'm not—I'm not, I'm just giving you a couple of examples, but, but, you know, and then above the wet forest, you would get into the montane forest, and we collect, you know, a lot of mamani and nio. And a lot of these species, they sort of extend into different ecosystems. And you'll find them, and their their habit, their growing habit, is a little different. But um, we collect from from these different locations— and try to plant them back in a similar kind of condition so they can thrive well. A case in point to the
3: importance of banking seeds is Ohia. Can you speak to what has been happening with rapid Ohia death and how banking seeds is part of that
4: solution?
5: Yes, the rapid Ohia death is a very serious problem, and of course, it is now extended to several islands you know oh here see this very tiny it's like a grain of sand and it moves in the wind windborne so is the fungus the ceratocystis fungus that attacks us this is not a fungus that has come from somewhere else a lot of people think that you know maybe it, it's like fire ants or kovie frogs or something that have come from another place it is not it's not the case with this fungus It's very specific to ohia, and um, it attacks, you know, trees that are are wounded. And a lot of trees in areas where maybe there are high winds and the branches break, or if there's a lot of grazing animals or ungulates that rub and they debark the tree, the trees are very susceptible. And in some areas, it's really wiped out some major forests. And unfortunately, there isn't a kind of a treatment. Very, very large trees or young trees are dying. Huge stands, you know, tens of thousands of acres. So we have done a project which was started by the Lion Arboretum, originally called Ohia Love. And that project has expanded over the years. And it's called the um, Rod Seed Banking Initiative, the Rapid Ohia Seed Banking Initiative And we try to go to as many wild trees as possible. So we don't collect from cultivated trees, from a tree somebody planted on their property. But if people have wild trees, then we always ask permission if we can collect, and we try to collect from as many individual trees as we can. And scientists have made a very nice um, seed zone map for each island. And those seed zone maps kind of help us to see where we need to collect, and we want to collect from at least 100 individuals from each seed zone. So we're making sure that we're really representing what's out in the field. And um, so we've been doing that, and we've collected probably over 16 million seeds or more, (laughs) and... um, we are committed to continuing. We've barely scratched the surface. We feel like oh, he is our—that's our mother tree. That is the foundational tree of all the ecosystems in Hawaii. So we really, really want to make sure that our generation doesn't let this slide. That we, we save the seed, and as the researchers and the science side of things, try to figure out how to address this. Fungus, we can we will have a resource to repropagate and grow, and we do encourage people to continue to plant ohia, plant a lot of ohia, so we can support our foundational species.
2: All right, and on this Earth Day, what message would you like to share?
5: I think we need to let nature be the guide. We need to continue to look around and support nature around us and be very sensitive to the preciousness of all of the life that we live with, including humans, but all of the other support. And trees definitely are the biggest supporters for all life. They provide us with oxygen and they are the really the lungs of the earth. So my message is really a celebration of trees for Earth Day, and a call for people to continue to to really take care of the nature around us in every place that we live.
0: That was Hawaii Island Seed Bank's Jill Wagner. She's also with TerraFormation, a company that's focused on native reforestation. In fact, Mayor Mitch Roth honored the group's efforts in his Earth Day proclamation just this morning. To learn more, go to our page on Hawaii Public Radio, where we'll have links posted. In our mailbox, we received this past Monday from a listener on the Valley Isle. Aloha, everybody. This is Peter Trunk on Maui. Too much talk, not enough action when it comes to climate change, the environment, and global warming. I read and hear so many reports about how we should save the planet. Why don't we clean up our own house first? In a recent article I read, it said in 2011, a 50cc two-stroke leaf blower and a Ford F-150 Raptor with a 6.2-liter 411-horsepower engine were each run for 30 minutes and the resultant pollutants were measured. The hydro carbon emissions from the leaf blower were the equivalent of driving the Ford pickup 3,887 miles. While I am riding this, my neighbor's gardener is blowing dust now since 30 minutes after he mowed the lawn for five minutes. We have to close the windows and the doors. Back in the 90s, nobody used those machines on Maui, but the many gardeners coming from California they have brought their loud equipment with them. Sad. Very sad. All the best, Peter Drunk. And a Big Island listener left us this message after our March 18th story about the Natural Energy Lab of Hawaii using new solar technolo- technology to manufacture reusable
4: plastic products. This is Brad in Coloco. So, I've oh, so the... Um... I got three points. The waste-to-energy machine solves all these problems that everyone's coming up with. The guy at OTEC making the, the water tanks out of solar. All we need is these waste-to-energy things, and uh, they make gigawatts and they gigawatts, and they save a lot of carbon dioxide, methane. They make a little carbon dioxide, which is cooling the atmosphere with all the plants, and it stops all that methane from being made, which is 25 times worse. A greenhouse gas,
3: whatever that means. I'm learning. Aloha, sir.
4: If you have a comment
0: on a story we've aired, call our Talk Back line 808 792 8217. You can also email us at Talk at HawaiiPublicRadio Public org or post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. That's it for today. Tomorrow we tickle your funny bone because April is also National Humor Month. Give us some feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.